Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Hi, in this episode, I speak to Bjorn Erster, who co-founded Oatly, the dairy alternative company that recently saw its flagship oat milk product fly off the shelves during the first weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic due to its shelf-stable nature as people were hoarding supplies to have at home. Bjorn is such fun and he's really candid and tells a great story of Oatly that he and his brother started in the 1990s and built together into this fantastic company that's very well known today, especially for its quirky and bold branding that you see adorned on the side of buses, but also for its focus on sustainability. We actually recorded this just as the pandemic was kicking off and before that oat milk rush. So you'll hear limited chat about the pandemic. But what's really cool is how he answers my typical question about how you view the future food system in 2050. A lot of what he says now feels extra relevant given the challenges that COVID-19 has presented and the ways in which the food system has had to adapt. We also talk about his new food venture, which includes a focus on combating diabetes and how he transitioned from IT to food in the 90s. This is an extra special and slightly longer edition of Future Food than normal, but please hang in there because there are a lot of great insights and it's a really fun conversation. As always, thank you so much for listening. Great to have you on. Where are you today and what did you have for breakfast? Hi, it's so great to be here. I am in beautiful Mill Valley, just north of San Francisco, in the smack middle of the Redwoods and enjoying another classic Mill Valley, foggy. I would say it's not raining, but it's definitely a lot of moist in the air. And I haven't had breakfast. I don't do breakfast anymore. I started intermittent fasting a little over a year ago. And after a couple of months of doing that, I realized that I don't need breakfast. Breakfast is overrated. I'll have it on a weekend, maybe, when it's kind of a fun happening thing. How funny. There's been quite a few guests actually on this podcast who are doing the same with intermittent fasting. Have you noticed it makes you feel better? Yeah. I, first of all, it helped me shed. I, I started to pack a few pounds extra. And, you know, when you started to have to make new holes in the belts, you start like, hmm, well, something <laughs> is going the wrong way here. And the worst was, I guess, my, what, 18-year-old son started teasing me. And then like, that was the final drop, right? The kind of, That's the okay. final straw. Yeah. Yeah, the final straw. So about a year, this a year and a half ago, I launched into this intermittent. And there's a lot of interesting research on fasting. I was kind of curious to try it anyway. and thinking, I'll give it a go and see what happens. What I didn't expect was that it really isn't something you go in and you fast for six weeks and then you're out of it and you, know, you add those kilos back or pounds back on again. But it really became... First of all, it's super easy. The first couple of days was hard, but then you get into it. It's super easy. Clearly, we don't need to eat three times a day, right? Then it just became, it just stuck with me. It's sort of a lifestyle. I just don't eat breakfast. I don't need it. I have a coffee, you know, not even you know, just a black coffee, and I'm good. And I do have breakfast occasionally on in weekends or whatever, but then it becomes more of a thing, right? I mean, food and all the, the world of diets and everything, food is... At the end of the day, something we must enjoy too. So nice, fresh eggs and croissants and cheese, whatever, jam, you know. Yeah. 
in researching this podcast, I discovered that soy milk and almond milk, etc., were introduced as early as the 13th century. But when I looked up oat milk, it looks like you and your brother literally invented it in 1985. How did this happen? Were you not fans of dairy milk? So, good question. Several things, right? I usually say it's all my brother's fault, right? He invented it. I certainly did not. He's the professor in food science. When he was a young PhD student at Lund University in Sweden, he studied under his then supervisor was Professor Dahlqvist, the very guy that discovered and first described lactose intolerance. That discovery he made already in the 1960s, but I guess it had an impact on his institution and the science and the research around there. And of course, my brother came there. And so he grew up academically, if you like, in an environment where milk equals issues. You have to put that into perspective too, that we are in Sweden, which had at the time and still has among the highest per capita consumption of dairy on the planet. We're certainly in the top 10 and significantly higher than in here in the US, for example, right? We also have among the lowest prevalences of lactose intolerances on the planet. So deeply rooted dairy culture, where dairy is holy, don't mess with my milk. That's where we started, right? <laughs> if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Lactic intolerance, of course, was nagging and trying to find a solution to that. And, and I think what really triggered my brother was, in fact, when he started seeing consumer packaged soy milk, because you're right, soy milk has been around forever, squeezing liquid out of soybeans has been around forever, and it's a deeply rooted tradition in, in Asia in particular, right? But in the late 80s, or in the mid-80s, I guess, it's really when we started to see the emerging plant-based dairy industry, and soy milk was really the first sort of real contender, real player to start building and developing this market. Very early, and sometimes in the 80s, there were some first patents on also making milk from rice that started happening, but it really didn't happen until then. And he saw that and immediately realized that they don't taste great, nutritionally doubtful, and got intrigued and sort of thought, if I'm going to make the perfect milk, you know, you start as a good scientist, you start with a white sheet of paper and you write down your specification, taste number one. If it doesn't taste right, forget it. And I think both soy and rice in those days had a big taste challenge, right? Then you go through the long list, the nutritional lack of allergens. Again, soy milk, big allergen issue there. And of course, a growing awareness of sustainability and climate change in the 80s started triggering this whole idea and concept. And he was also driven by, the, he wanted to find raw materials that people knew. It shouldn't be something hokey pokey, funny, crazy, strange stuff, right? But raw, true, honest, raw material. So we started looking at a ton of different products and very quickly landed in oats. And uh, products, I mean that, raw materials, right? And he landed in oats that combined to all these things, grows all over the world, very cheap to grow. And in the 80s also, FDA came with the first health claims on oats. The, the first time FDA ever awarded health claim to a food uh, was oats for its clearly documented ability to reduce cholesterol, their bad LDL cholesterol. So oats, obviously a very interesting target. And also, as it happens, Scandinavia happens to be the home of some of the best oats on the planet. And I think that's simply due to the combination of the right soil and climate. The rest is history. The rest is history, right, exactly. It sounds like it started off 
looking for alternatives for people that had lactose intolerance. But obviously, the narrative has expanded since then. And I note that you have, you know, a sustainability report on the website now and very much thinking about the environmental credentials of oat milk versus dairy milk. When did that sort of angle come into the picture? It sort of grew gradually, I would say. In some sense, we didn't really care about lactose intolerance when we launched Oatly. So the brand Oatly, I joined my brother in 97. I just sold a computer security company that I founded and worked with for a few years and sold that and wanted to do something new. And I felt that the most natural progression in my career is to go from computer security to oat milk. I mean, it's just (laughs) obviously very logical, right? Yeah. So I was pleased to have that opportunity and jumped on that saw that I could maybe help my brother with some of my business experiences from a global perspective. I've done business all over the world selling computer solutions, right? Together, we started trying to figure out what to do with this cool invention. It tasted great. Everybody that looked at it said, this is really cool, but what is it? And what do we do about it? No idea. But when we launched Oatly, the brand in 2001, we really targeted milk protein allergic families, not lactose intolerance. And I don't want to go into too much of the detail, but it's actually... Between one and two percent of the population, but it affects whole families. So it indirectly affects maybe five or seven percent of the population. And these numbers are fairly constant across the world, apparently. It seems to be, you know, that's around the norm. And that's a nice enough niche market for somebody that's totally new and comes with a new thing to the market that nobody heard of before. And, and, you know, you need to find your own little corner, your quiet little corner in the market where you can become a big fish in a small pond, right? So that's what we did. And we gradually, we started adding vegans and we started going abroad. UK, notably, was our first international market. And you add one brick to the other, we kept growing, growing, growing. And then we realized that, okay, we've taken that market now. Where do we go next? So we're in the mid-2000s. And by then, we also realized that the awareness of the sustainability issue, the problems with soy and the burning of rainforest in the Amazonas and the very, very, I have to be careful how I phrase it, but their industry came under much scrutiny for a whole slew of reasons. Sustainability and carbon dioxide footprint is only being one, water footprint another one. And then, of course, the whole animal husbandry issues and antibiotics, and the list is long. And rightfully, a lot of people start to react. And on top of that, it's also funded by us, the taxpayers in all our Western countries. So why are we taxpayers funding that industry? You know, it can't live on its own merits. So a lot of issues, the perfect storm starting to blow. So that's when we start go broader and broader. And I'd say it came, we realized that in order to go after that market and really tell the story that we had inside of us, we needed to go much broader and we needed to target the younger generation. And in order to do that, you couldn't be sort of a esoteric medical brand in the boring part of the retail store, right? You needed to be something else. So we searched long and hard and deep for our real true voice. And somehow we found it, right? The combination of being funny and quirky and Scandinavian and healthy and all that, rebel and everything. And in 2014, we really relaunched ourselves as a newborn company. We had a new CEO that really got it on board. And really, the rest is history. But it was daring to take that deep plunge, jump off the cliff into that deep chasm, into the unknown. And one of the first things we did was to also 
realize that our market is not to compete with soy and almond milks, right? Because we feel like we have a far superior product and those are truly niche markets in some sense. Our competition is in dairy industry. Mm-hmm. And I would say we were maybe one of the first plant-based companies that really targeted dairy industry square on. And they were grateful enough to sue us for that, which was the best thing that ever happened to us. Right. A great PR event for you. Oh, incredible. Incredible, right? And we became a conversational piece in you know the morning show couches and TV programs in the UK and Sweden and elsewhere where they started raising questions that the dairy industry certainly didn't want to discuss. For example, government subsidies. Why can dairy companies make commercials and promote their brands to school children? No one else can do that, but they can. Why is that? Etc. Etc. The list goes on, right? So the whole conversation moved into a place where there's sustainability issue around dairy and animal husbandry practices and all that good stuff became mainstream conversation really bad for the dairy industry. I mean, I presume, just picking up on that comment around advertising to school children, of course, dairy or dairy substitutes are a very essential part of a children's diet, especially when they're growing. So I presume that must be why they were allowed to advertise to them. How do you think that Oatly can provide the same nutritional benefits? And would you like to see that being served at break time at different schools? Oh, absolutely. And here's the catch, right? One of the coolest things we've done. One of our best kept secrets is that we did a study on school children. We did a one-year intervention study. 800 school children consumed one carton of Oatly per day for a full year. 800 children. We did this in China together with the Chinese Ministry of Health. And we did it between 2010 and 12, I think. I hope I got the years right. There's a long story behind it, but it started off really with the famous melamine scandal in China where the people, meal producers with less integrity started to mix melamine in milk to get better pay for the milk when they sold it to the dairy companies. Not such a smart idea. Small amounts of melamine are harmless, but they accumulate in small babies' bodies. So even small amounts over time will get you to accumulate poisonous levels. That led to us to do a study and we studied bone density growth, for example, and uh, vitamin D and vitamin A status and iron status and dramatically improved all these markers and could show high significant growth in bone density within one year on all these children. There's no study on this planet today that can show the same thing for dairy. In fact, there is very few studies showing that dairy improves bone density and bone strength. In fact, it's exactly the opposite, right? There's several big meta-analysis and meta-studies showing that high milk consumption gives you exactly the opposite, the increased risk of osteoporosis. Really interesting considering that the bone density and calcium content on milk as a calcium source is the single largest cells are argument for milk. And they have no proof, but we have proof that Oatly effectively delivers calcium extremely well. We did that clinical study, which is pretty remarkable. But then, of course, getting actually into schools, that's when we ran into this whole issue. We weren't even allowed to sell to schools, not even in Scandinavia, in our home territory for years because of all kinds of minefields that the dairy industry had planted there over the years that were supposedly based on scientific, you know, some kind of evidence, but clearly have all been debunked, right? And now we are allowed to go there. We have some ideas about doing 
schoolmate programs and whatnot, because there's absolutely a place for us to be there. Do you consume any dairy products now? Personally, I do at times. When I meet, you know, organic, trustworthy dairy farmers, I will typically tell them that there's still some markets where we really want you guys, right? We want you to take care of the cows. Cows are never going to disappear, right? So the cows that we keep, we need to take care of them in the right way and produce the best quality milk because there's something that no plant-based company can do yet. Anyone, and I'm happy to challenge anyone on that, has good cheese. And I mean not another cheddar cheese, you know, in the cooler in Safeway here in California. That's not a good cheese. That's waste of energy and time and space. But go to France or Italy or Spain or to Napa and Sonoma. There's some excellent, really good artisanal cheesemakers also here in California, as there are in, in, up in your part or in Vermont and whatnot. So there are certainly some really good dairy farmers that make exquisite cheeses and praise them because what would life be without good cheese? Mm-hmm. We have a fantastic dairy farm close to me here in Connecticut that has amazing cheeses. So big question for you. What is your vision for the future food system? What do you think it will look like or should look like in 2050? Yeah, you know, my crystal ball. It's hard to, of course, but my guess is we'll see a lot more of local production and and high-tech production coming out locally. We need to break this sort of big industry complex that causes all these issues, right? And quite frankly, with modern food technology, we don't quite need them anymore. I think it's easy to beat up on the food industry, the traditional CPG companies, and I'm certainly one of them that like to do that because for many good reasons. But we have to also give them credit for being able to supply, granted, overly processed, but totally safe food in large quantity at low price which has been a foundation for the whole development of the modern society, right? The ability to make preserved meat and veggies and whatnot in cans. Yeah, and that industry sort of required the cut cost. It required the development of a food system that we see today, right? The extreme part of that is, for example, the dairy industry. Here in California, you drive into State 5 from Sacramento down to LA and you go through Fresno and Modesto and those areas and there's an area there that we refer to as Kauschwitz. It's the single largest dairy production region in the US and California is what 25% of the dairy production in the US which is completely screwed when you think about it because it shouldn't be here right because it requires so much water. That's a different conversation but you see these mega you know 20,000 heads in a big farm and That type of industry has been developed because of the drive for low cost and whatnot. And given the technology and the knowledge we've had about how to preserve food, it was almost necessary to build an industry like that. But guess what? We've learned so much more now. It's time to move on. We can do very different things. You start seeing vertical farms and whatnot coming up where you can grow fresh produce and a lot of other stuff closer to the big population areas. And I think that will have a big impact. You start seeing smaller factors producing low-quality products at good uh, cost-effective measures, you know, in pretty much any industry where you don't need these big mega plants. I mean, the meatpacking industry is another horrific example of a set of very few big meatpacking companies supplied entire country, right? But we're now getting better techniques, better ways of ensuring hygiene and whatnot that opens up for 
go back to more localized productions with higher quality, with closer connections to the consumers, I think we will see that trend continue. How would that work for Oatly then? How big are your processing plants? Where are they located? Would you imagine having a network of more localized plants to supply to different regions? Ultimately, with the bigger consumption, you have to, right? Because you can't ship water long distances. That's about the dumbest thing you can do. But we have to start somewhere. And uh, we're certainly moving, Oatly is moving its plants closer to its consumers. We're building a plant in Asia. We have one in the U.S. and the second one will open very soon here on the West Coast. So an East Coast, West Coast strategy. And as the business grows, you will have, I'm sure, a third plant in the Midwest somewhere, maybe down south. And we can also see how with smarter processing technology, it may be down the line. We can speculate in a couple of years, maybe powders, and you reconstitute in a very simple way at home with your filtered local town water. And we see a lot of interesting stuff on filtering techniques. So why shouldn't that be logical, right? And it should still be, quote-unquote, fresh in the sense that it's not overly processed. There's certainly ways of doing that. Also, I think one of the reasons really why you have bigger plants today, what you do, the single biggest investment in a dairy, or that might be exaggerating a little bit, but a key part of the cost when you build an oatmeal plant or soy milk or milk dairy plant or whatever is the filling lines and the hall where you package the product. And package technologies, really to get any kind of economy there, you need big runs and big scale. And that drives that business, right? But I think technology development, for example, blue mold, completely organic, biodegradable plastics could change that picture dramatically. So we could start produce very, you know, low impact, environmental friendly, consumer friendly packaging much easier. And that will change that economy dramatically. Oatly is obviously a mission driven company. And we've talked about your sustainability policy a little bit, and I saw that you've had a report. So as being a front runner and a trailblazer in this industry, do you have specific parameters for farmers to follow? And are you taking it seriously that you're a front runner in this industry and potentially providing best practices for other startups coming through in the plant-based arena? I would say Oakley takes this very seriously, and it's sort of a golden opportunity that has presented itself. When we started this business, We were a tiny buyer of oats, right? And we were the last in line and we had to cope with pretty much whatever was (laughs) left for us. But we very early and part of the, the early invention and development of the product was that we realized that oats are not oats are not oats. There's a world of oats out there and a big variety of oats, thousands of oat varieties when you start looking into it. And they're not equal. So we started demanding very particular varieties of oats in a very clean way. And that was challenging for the supply chain in the late 1990s because nobody had ever asked that before. But we were still too small to really have an impact on the upstream sort of part, right, production and whatnot. But we're seeing now with the current growth in Oatly, Oatly will likely be one of the largest buyers of oats for human consumption on the planet within just a few years. There are some CPG companies that are very large oat consumers, but they also have a lot of their own farming already. They're already vertically integrated, right? We're not there yet, but we're going there very rapidly. And that gives us incredible opportunity. 
not only for technological development upstream, but also to start contract farming and whatnot, and then help farmers use best practices and develop best practices where they aren't developed and share those. And I know Oatley, the team here in the U.S., have done some really cool stuff with a couple of local farmers in Iowa. Family-owned farms that have, you know, a couple of generations back used to grow oats and love you do it. Oat happens to be an absolutely excellent rotational crop, so a lot of farmers really enjoy growing oats because it helps improve the quality of their soil. But as we know, the Midwest has become monocultures. It's all about soybeans and corn and maybe occasionally wheat, whatever, right? But that's it. Now we give these farmers an opportunity to reintroduce a much sought-after rotational crop and help them with, you know, best farming practices and whatnot and, and make a good income of it. So give them more flexibility. That's a great way of impacting the supply chain. I saw some news earlier this year that Oatly is considering an IPO or an acquisition or, you know, the next kind of phase. How can companies that are looking to make that jump ensure that they maintain that integrity and that mission and those sustainability policies, you know, when they move into potentially another ownership or becoming a public company? Yeah, it's a good question, right? And I've certainly over the years learned that you must uh, never underestimate the importance of having the right owner in a business. The wrong owner can really ruin a business quickly. As with leadership of a company, right, there's a time and a place, I guess, in the development of a company where different types of owners have a better or uh, you know, less optimal role to play. So totally agree that that's critical. And I think we can only look at pretty much most of the, I would say there are few successful acquisitions in the food industry. Certainly just look here in the US, what's happened lately. There's a company in whatever category that becomes hugely successful, becomes sort of the darling of everybody, and then it gets acquired by a large CPG company, and then it dies. And that happens again and again and again and again, right? And I think the CPG companies see this. They're realizing that we can't go on like that. We need to find better ways. And they have to buy companies if they're going to stay relevant because they can never make innovation themselves. They shouldn't even try to because it's really hard to create a truly innovative environment in, in a large corporate structure. You have to disconnect it from the corporate culture. And, you know, we have a saying, the day a, a man or a woman with a spreadsheet walks into the R&D department, innovation walks out through the other door. You can't mandate, you can't go to people, give them a budget and say, invent something cool. <laughs> yeah. Innovation has to happen wherever it happens. You need to be nimble and fast and quick and understand and absorb and pick it up and then figure out how to integrate it. And clearly the current paradigm of just trying to integrate it into the big existing structures will effectively kill it. So you can't do that. To the extent an acquisition ever would happen, who knows, right? In this world, I think that the risk of whoever that acquirer is to kill a company like Oatly, the risk is very large. I bet that will happen if it happens. So clearly, we're not very keen on seeing that happen. We're, you know, the founders and the team, the, the management team, we see a long-term journey here. There's so much left to be done in this world. I mean, we're talking, we just had a team that mapped the OT genome back in Sweden last year. There's so many ways this can continue to develop for years. I would hate to see a big corporate come in and basically screw that up, trying to make some short-term profits. An IPO is very different because you don't necessarily have to concede 
control over that. In fact, an IPO could be a really good way of getting that message out there to a broader audience, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously with the success of Beyond Meat, the path is primed a little bit for you guys. It is. Although I'm very nervous about Beyond Meat because it's been so ridiculously overvalued that I'm afraid that if anything, they're going to come crashing down and a lot of people will be burnt. I don't know. I'm negative maybe. Do you think they will bounce back as we hope the stock markets will bounce back after coronavirus? You know, it'll just be interesting to see how things, if they level off where they were before, or if there'll be other industries where people are more cautious. I want to put it in perspective. Let me see if I can pull up today's stock market and see where they are. So they are trading. They're a little bit down right this moment. The market cap is $3.6 billion for Beyond Meat. That's around where it listed. No, it's three times over its listing value. Let me pick that up. Yeah, it's trading at 58 and it listed at 20, didn't it? 25 maybe. So maybe twice over its listing. In any way, that value, if you look at their sales and anything, that's an extremely valued company in any reference model, right? They're not doing poorly, even today, right? You could argue, had they been truly overvalued, they could have been, I mean, what's their sales? Are they hitting 200 million now and they're valued at 3.6? I mean, come on, that's not bad value, right? Just looking at the numbers. So maybe there's a correction here, maybe 10 billion was absolute exuberant hubris. You could not argue that they're worth 10 billion. I don't know what they were smoking when they bought those shares at those prices. (laughs) So it makes you nervous because... I believe in Beyond Meat. I think it's a great company. I think they have a great potential and, you know, their products are great. So I'm not... (laughs) What my concern was that their valuation... I don't want to create a bubble in this industry where all kinds of dumb money come running in and throwing crazy money after you because, oh yeah, I need to be in plant space now because it's doing so well. I want to build a long-term, sustainable, sound, solid industry. That's what I would love to see. And I don't believe in you know these hypes. Then I don't think they're helpful. I think what you see, for one thing, you see a bunch of companies that, in my humble opinion, shouldn't get funding because their ideas are half-baked, right? But they tick all the boxes because they have the right buzzwords in their presentation, and so people throw money at them. And that's not necessarily helpful for the real industries and real companies around here, right? So if we could get some sanity back to valuation and whatnot, after our own IPO, that is, right? (laughs) (laughs) Jokes aside, right? I think we have to look long-term. We're not here for the sprint. We're here for the marathon or for the Ironman even. The triple iron man or whatever, right? Okay. So before we get into what you're doing today and some of your new businesses, I'm going to do a hot or not round with some food trends. So I'll say the food trend and you say if you think they're hot or not. Okay. Gluten-free. Lukewarm. CBD. Well, it's obviously hot, but I like to see the long-term sustainability in that industry, unless they come with more clinical or more proof. Insect ice cream. Uh, insect ice cream. I don't know. I haven't come across that one. I'd say, yeah, hot. Meal kits. Meal kits. Hot. Robotic cafes. Cold. Drinkable meals. Cold. Non-alcoholic drinks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I realize I'm asking you while the world is in a pandemic, so you might not be so hot on them right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I prefer mine with tequila, but I do think 
they are hot. I think there's a future there for many reasons. Tell us, what are you doing today? I think you've got a few businesses that have been recently launched or soon to launch. Yeah. So my brother and I took 12 years ago, we took uh, this core of the R, the research part out of Oatly, the long-term research aspects out of Oatly and formed a separate company that today we call it a venture. It's our food tech lab where we really nerd into all kinds of stuff. A lot of the work we do is around oats and health aspects of oats, you know, like being part of mapping the oat genome and looking at new oat varieties and oat farming practices, all that kind of good stuff. But with the desire, the reason for us to be involved in that is to identify compounds in oats that are healthy or than others and develop truly functional products. So in Aventure, our mission is to develop new food products with documented health benefits. And we take that seriously. We think there's been for too many years, too many unserious food companies and dietary supplement suppliers that claim all kinds of good stuff, right? On some kind of generic claims, but without any, effectively, too many people selling snake oil. So our philosophy has always been, and it started with the early days of Oakley, actually one of the first design criteria when we launched Oakley was to prove that Oakley, well, we said, right, oats reduces cholesterol. So my brother and his team put a lot of emphasis on not only maintaining that ability in the Oatly product, but actually ensure that it's as optimal as it can be. And to do that, you obviously have to do clinical studies and clinical trials. So we did a whole bunch of clinical. We've done, I think, four published studies and a few more that we never published that prove that Oatly is extremely efficient at reducing LDL cholesterol. So from our learning from that was the whole clinical side of things. And now we have several companies that we spawned off from the food tech labs at the venture where we go after, you know, very exciting and important health aspects, whether that is blood pressure or cognitive function. We have two products in clinical trials in different parts of the world that are target type 2 diabetics, for example, and the early results are extremely promising. In that world, we came across a patent and a research group at the university in, in Sweden that looked at amino acids and amino acids' effect on blood glucose management. Long story short, that led to that we engaged with them, worked with them, and we have now developed and have launched a product here in the US called Good Idea. And that's my daytime job today, right? I run Good Idea as a, as a CEO, and we've been on the market for a little over a year. It's a sparkling water. It tastes like any other flavored sparkling water. Quality sparkling water, I would say, developed with a flavor profile to make it pair well with food. And the idea here is that you drink it with your meal and it will reduce the blood sugar response from the meal with some 25-30%, which is very significant reduction. And you and I and everybody will notice that if you drink it with your lunch, you won't get tired after lunch totally uh, eliminate or dramatically reduce the slump. And after the slump, you get your sugar cravings, so you reduce those too. You don't get the same hunger feeling. You don't get the same sugar craving. It's really a good way to help anyone break the vicious, evil roller coaster ride of sugar highs and sugar lows that so many of us are caught in. And those roller coaster rides are what leads us to ultimately prediabetes, obesity, and, and a whole slew of what we call the metabolic syndrome issues, right? High blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Really what you want to do is to reduce the insulin load on your system, 
by reducing and managing your blood sugar, that's what we do. It's a perfect product for anyone in an office environment. In that sense, it's a natural energy beverage without giving you energy. It just makes sure it manages the energy you already taken and consumed in a much better way. What's the core ingredient there? The secret sauce, which is not so secret, is a combination of five essential amino acids and chromium. Essential amino acids are amino acids you have to have in your diet on a daily basis. And we picked five of them because we've shown in our studies, and we've done nine clinical studies today to show the efficacy and that we have optimized the amounts and the dosage and their internal proportions of them, right? But they have to be served in liquid form because they're extremely bioavailable then. And what we've seen in our research is that they tend to indicate an early insulin release. There's a lot of insulin stored on cellular level, ready to be thrown into the blood system to start process blood glucose when it arrives. So we prime that system and help that early release. And then the chromium, which is also an essential mineral that most Americans, I think we have researchers claiming about 50% of adult Americans are chromium deficient, actually. It's not been as talked about as iron and other minerals, but I think we'll learn more and more about it over time here. The chromium is also very well known, and I mean, many other studies by other researchers have shown over and over again that chromium helps improve what we call the insulin efficiency, right? So you get the same job done with less insulin. So you combine these two when we found, lo and behold, to our surprise and excitement, a very strong synergistic effect compared to if you take one or the other on their own, right? So you combine them and you get the 25-30% blood sugar reduction from your food. Is that product available now or what stage are you at? We've been test launching in retail and various sales channels. The big challenge when you bring something brand new like that is that nobody knows of it. So you have a big educational uphill battle to fight to get the market to be aware and to identify who are the first to jump on this. So we do a lot of work with nutritionists and dietitians. I mean, there are 90 million pre-diabetics in this country. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, but only roughly 10% of them know they are pre-diabetic, right? So we have about 80 million pre-diabetics that don't even know they are. Pre-diabetics have a significantly higher risk of developing diabetes. And that's where a product like this has its ultimate role to help pre-diabetics get a better, fair chance to fight off and not developing diabetes. The effects are good and beneficial for everybody, right? But pre-diabetics is really the goal, the big prize for us to get there. It's not a homogeneous group, so you have to find different apps to get in there, and you have to start with the young generation, so it becomes sort of a natural step in there. So that's why we go after different groups. So I take it you're not going back to the software industry then? <laughs> No, not in the first instance. Although with, with good idea, it's actually very cool because we do work with a lot of technology providers because when you have a product with a significant effect, but how do I prove to you that it actually works? Well, there's a lot of glucose monitors in the industry and uh, I'm sorry, in the market now, right? It may be hard for you and me to buy if we don't have a prescription from a doctor, but there are a lot of companies now starting providing technology that help monitor and gauge your blood sugar. And I've been using CGMs, as they're called, continuous glucose monitors. You slap a patch in your arm and it integrates and talks to an app on your phone. And then you can overlay that with your sleeping patterns, your stress level, what you eat, and all kinds of other biomarkers. And you get an amazing, really eye-opening 
experience to see how food and other things affect our blood sugar and how we actually, once we know, we can actually have an impact and we can control it in a much better way. So I see good idea. We are really reaching out to work with a lot of technology companies. We're seeing around the corner, a lot of people may shy away from slap a patch on your arm. It's actually shooting in a quarter of an inch of a, it's not a needle, it's more a sensor. It's like a thin hair. But anyway, some people may not want to do that, but we also see technology that's non-intrusive. Picture an Apple Watch with a glucose monitor in it, right? And that's going to happen. It's around the corner in a year, two years from now. And we want to be very much part of that when that happens because we have a tool that anyone that measures their blood sugar can actually very conveniently and easily take and see the effects. It's very cool to work with food where you can integrate technology in a meaningful way. Absolutely. So we're running out of time now. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish we could continue. I just have one final question, which is obviously you have built, you know, you started in Sweden. It was a European company and startup to begin with, and you successfully expanded globally. What advice would you have for European startups in terms of doing that expansion? Because I know that can be a real struggle. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And it kind of depends on product by product level. But I would say I'd recommend people to don't try to take the entire world day one. Of course not, right? But build a few strategic beachheads around the world and try to do that. So in Aventure now, we have offices, we have a lab actually in Hong Kong. We have obviously a base here in California, which is a great spot to be given the food tech industry's development. But I think certainly from a European perspective, jump the pond very quickly, but be smart about it. Don't, don't think you're going to take the entire country day one. That won't happen, right? Chances are it won't happen, but be smart. Establish beachheads and proof of concepts in, in Asia and in North America very early on. But be patient about it too. Be prepared for a longer run. It's not an immediate success. But if you can build that proof point, you create an incredible value. And you know, there's another thing, an experience from Oatly that's worthwhile sharing maybe, and that's Oatly has a strong focus on Gen Z. And it's easy to see today that when you target a 19-year-old high school, high school graduate or a college kid, whatever they are, right, sort of that 17 to 22, wherever, you target them in Hong Kong, in Cape Town, in Sydney, in Stockholm, Helsinki, and San Francisco they have more in common between them than they have with us, their parents. And that's really interesting to see how with social media and YouTube influences and whatnot, how the Gen Z channel is very different from, from more of the traditional market channels. And it gives you a very new perspective of how you look at target audiences and how you go after market segments and whatnot. I think that's a big part of the question here. It may be looking at demographics as opposed to geographics. And social media allows you to do that. I think that's an important component to keep in mind when you look at your go-to-market strategy. Thank you. That's great advice. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been thank so you. good to talk to you. Yeah, it's fun. Stay safe out there. Yeah, oh, yeah. We'll do what we can. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Boa-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.